0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Please be seated. Now, when Jeffrey asked me to preach, um, I was thrilled, thrilled uh, at the opportunity. And like a child, uh, On Christmas Eve, I was waiting expectedly for the gospel lesson. What would I be preaching on today? And I cannot tell you how thrilled I was to learn that today's gospel lesson was, of course, this rich, rich passage from Luke depicting John the Baptist's sermon about the coming of Jesus. And, of course, I thought, I have been waiting 30 years to stand in front of an audience and utter the immortal words, worthy of Charlton Heston or Clint Eastwood, you brood of vipers. (laughs) Now, in particular, uh, after I found out the good news about my subject today, I ran into a fellow parishioner, a former colleague at Coca-Cola Barksdale Collins, and I said, now Barksdale, you're gonna be at church, aren't you? And He said, wouldn't miss it. Barksdale, are you here? I'm here. Yes, sir. I said, now, Barksdale, when I get to that part about the brood of vipers, I don't want you averting your eyes. Um, Just a quick word about preaching, and it it really harkens back to a story. Um, Twenty-nine years ago, in my second year at Yale Divinity School, where I was preparing for the ministry, I had the privilege of studying under uh, a... Preaching legend, really, one of the giants at Yale, a fellow named Bill Meal. Um, Bill Meal was a lawyer by training. He was by every measure a precise, disciplined, orderly teacher, a neatly trimmed gray beard, well pressed shirt, right out of the set of madmen. And in addition to teaching us the art of preaching, he also taught us the tragedy of the misplaced modifier. <laughs> now, in our preaching class, uh, the way it worked is you know, we would have class and then we'd gather uh, at Mark Juan Chapel to deliver our sermons to a class of roughly 10 to 15 fellow students. And Professor Meal had this tradition he would sit on the last row in the back. I can still see him back there. Uh, and on the right-hand side, and from there in, in a booming voice and in the hard and even judgmental tradition of John the Baptist, he would dish out tough but uh, honest and true feedback. So one day, as I was rambling on about the Sermon on the Mount, babbling about Karl Bart this and the eschaton that, Bill Meal jumps to his feet, stop, stop. With that, he slowly comes down the middle of the aisle. I can still see my fellow classmate, Dick Greenwood, leaning over and saying, watch this, Tuggle's about to go down. (laughs) Bill comes up to the front, he says, what are you doing? He said, you are standing before men and women. Pretend this is a Sunday morning. They're sick, they're broken, they're lonely, they're dejected. They're desperately seeking meaning from their faith and their church. And you, sir, have just taken one of the richest pieces of biblical literature and turned it into theological dribble. Just tell the story. Well, the fact of the matter is while we were all well versed uh, in the historical, critical didactic of Friedrich Schleiermacher, few of us had actually read the Bible and so we didn't really know the stories. (laughs) And so here I stand 30 years later with Professor Meal's voice in my head. Been going through a lot of therapy since then, it's still there. (laughs) And I shall endeavor not to make theological drivel of this rich and profound gospel reading. So I'm gonna try to just stick with the story. To be true, And sure, uh, John's ministry is a great story, but it's also a tough story. I mean, here we are at Christmas, singing choirs of angels, pious shepherds coming to kneel before the Christ child, a guiding star lighting the way, expensive gifts being delivered on camelback, and in walks this guy, talking about the judgment day winnowing forks, burning chaff, axes being taken to dead wood. Not exactly the stuff that Mariah Carey or Harry Connick Jr. would build a Christmas album around. But make no mistake, there is a very, very important Advent message here. So let's start with John the Baptist himself. He's one of my favorite people in Jesus' life, a preacher without peer, Certainly, as he was deputized by God to prepare people for the coming of Christ, also the cousin of Jesus, and a religious, if not political, revolutionary. John preached sermons that were blunt, brutally honest, never pulled any punches, and still the crowds kept coming back. He was not politically correct which is exactly why God chose John to tell of Jesus' coming. Jesus said it best himself. Among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. Now, John grew up in a tough part of town, living out there in the dusty desert, fleeing the forces of Herod, who had killed his father when he was a child. He was seen as a troublemaker, in and out of jail, but somehow he kept, attracting these huge crowds, this following. And with his camel hair shirt and diet of locusts and wild honey, he was also by every measure one really strange dude. So strange, in fact, that no less spiritual authority than the Grateful Dead paid tribute to him in their classic tune, Uncle John's band, with that great line, he comes to take his children home. And yet, we are still drawn to him, just as his contemporaries were. Now, John's mission was simple, to preach the message that, one, God is coming, and two, you can change. John talks a lot about repentance, but repentance is really just a fancy word for turning over a new leaf and radically changing your ways. It wasn't a very uplifting job, but somebody had to do it. So the world we find John wandering around in was not a happy place. Palestine around 28 AD was locked in the grip of a foreign and unforgiving pagan force known as the Roman Empire. The great biblical scholar, Alfred Adersheim in his historic masterpiece, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, described the scene as morally and socially corrupt to the core, where, and I just love this quote, unnatural vices, which even the greatest philosophers practiced, if not advocated, attained proportions which defy description. Wow. Sounds pretty R-rated to me. Jerusalem's fall in A.D. 70 was perilously close and foreshadowed the final judgment. Moral corruption had infected the Jewish tradition as well. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Not a pretty picture, to say the least. And so, into this murky, broken, corrupt, and destitute world walks this highly unusual man with a message of repentance that required not just saying the right words, but demanded literally the reformation of one's life. So on this day, John stands before yet another crowd looking for meaning amidst chaos. Some wanted to be baptized, others just curious to hear what this strange guy had to say. And as John looks out over this crowd, He doesn't like what he sees. What he sees is a group of superficial people he views as unprepared to make the radical changes in their lives and their conduct that would save themselves, their faith, and their very society. And to be honest, it makes him mad. You bunch of snakes. Why are you even here? And who do you think you are? And then come the questions in quick succession. Who told you to run away from God's wrath? He hits harder and harder, telling them that just being of the lineage of Abraham is not enough. He goes on to say that the day of judgment is coming, and for those who do not repent and have tangible proof of what has changed in their lives, things will not go well. Merry Christmas. Every tree, therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a great scene, fabulous scene. Eyes blazing, voice trembling. It, it must have been like this bizarre combination of Ernest Angley, Clarence Darrow, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> fabulous. Crowd is dumbfounded, dumbfounded, and probably a little scared. It must have been shocking For John to hit the religious elite like this, again, not at all politically correct. Okay, all right, okay, we got it. So, what do you want us to do? Now, this is the key to the whole story, the recurring question What then should we do? Well, John's answer is simple to the crowd which must have been pretty poor, he tells them to share. If you have more than you need in terms of food and clothing, then you must share. To the tax collectors, be fair. Stop keeping a share for yourself. In other words, stop stealing. To the soldiers, don't bully people. Pretty simple. No hoarding, no skimming, no extortion. You can just see the crowd sitting there looking at each other. Who is this guy? Maybe he's the messiah. And then comes the famous line. And this, this really is the Advent message. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. But not to let them off the hook, he returns recur- again to the theme of judgment. Ah, yes that pesky, winnowing fork and burning chaff. It's a great story. Indeed, in so many ways, John's sermon is another important moment in the Reformation of our faith. Throughout the ages, this difficult question just won't go away. What, then, should we do? And it is the perfect question for Advent. How shall we respond to the coming of the Messiah? The question John puts to those wayward souls 2,000 years ago remains as timely and as true as ever. What will be the fruits of our repentance? How can we meet the promise of this Christmas with real, meaningful expectation? What about our lives will change? What will we do differently with the help and power of the Holy Spirit to make our faith manifest? How then? Shall we live? These are exactly the questions that have plagued theologians and religious people and inspired reformers for centuries. These are the questions that inspired Martin Luther to proclaim before the Diet of Worms nearly 500 years ago, here I stand. I can do no otherwise. God help me. These are the tough questions Pope Francis is asking of the Roman Catholic Church today. And they are the questions, I would submit, that we should be asking ourselves now and always. They're tough questions. And maybe it does take a strong, loud, revolutionary voice like John's to break through the fog of moral and material corruption. It often takes someone like John to hold up the mirror and force us to see ourselves for who we really are. Indeed, John's challenge to that crowd 2,000 years ago is as real and relevant today as it was then. Coming through these doors every week, resting purely on the tradition of our faith, the descendancy of our faith, will result in little more than dead wood. But then, what should we do? Well, it's simple. Be honest, be generous, treat people right, love God with more than your words. Let our life's work reflect our love of God. This Christmas, as we anticipate the coming of God, we face many questions and challenges. Gun violence and terrorism are part of our daily story. Should we stay indoors and hide? Millions of refugees are knocking at our door asking for help. How will we answer the call? Our streets are teeming with the poor and homeless, broken lives with little hope. Will we stop and help like the good Samaritan Jesus spoke of? With the relentless moment-by-moment barrage of bad news, bad tidings in Christmas speak, we may feel that our just and civil society teeters on the brink, and even our religious footholds can seem less sure, less skid proof. It sounds a lot like the world John was living in and perhaps that's one reason why we in particular need to hear and heed him. This morning we the faithful say we believe, but what do we do? I encourage us all this Christmas season to listen not only for that still quiet, angelic voice, but also for that loud, booming, uncomfortable voice that invites radical change. And then I encourage us to open wide our hearts and our minds and have the courage and faith to make those changes with the blessing and power of God's Holy Spirit. In the end, John left his followers with the good news that light and hope and redemption And God were near. This was good news for people like us who longed for God's coming, who hoped for God's coming, who wanted to be ready for God's coming. And this good news endures today for all of us. This Christmas, yes, we are called to believe, but we are also called to act and become a force of civility and decency and hope by sharing the love of God and the message of Christ with our neighbors near and far. And so here we stand together in this mission, acting as his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and yes, to the ends of the earth. Be assured and take heart in this, that this Christmas, as always, the Lord is near. You need not worry about everything, anything And in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.